I'm really curious how many people are going to disagree with me on this one. I suppose I'm curious about that with a lot of these episodes, but... Uh, so, I, I got to the end of the episode. A lot of my notes are in all caps. I'm angry. This episode has pissed me off. And I'm going through it like, okay. Okay, I'm ready to record. Yes, whatever. Sorry. my coat, you know. Set up the thing, make sure the file name is correct, and I hit record, and I sit there and I'm staring at it like, wait, why isn't this a lamentation? And I started thinking about it, and I'm like, okay, well, obviously, you know, it's got redeeming elements, right? I mean, I had that one good scene, which redeems it, right? And I started thinking, does it have any other good scenes in it, other than the one good scene? And even the one good scene wasn't done as well as it probably should be, especially since, well... This episode actually does a disservice to the character who has that one good scene. That would be Travis. The more I thought about it, the more I was like, no, screw this episode. Because while it does have one good scene, that's all it has going for it. And as I've said before, Justice probably should have gotten a lamentation. So here we are. Now I want to share a little bit of behind-the-scenes thing for you, okay? So, there I was, working on waking up. This is the first episode I've covered today. I'm waking up, and I'm like, ugh. So, naturally, I start doing, you know, some of my prep work. Finding out information, seeing if there's anything to share, and getting ready for it while cooking breakfast, and getting some cleaning done, and, you know, shorting out my, my bed, making my bed, stuff like that. And I'm doing this, and I find a quote. And it says, the original ending of this episode was substantially different, citation needed. And I'm like, oh, well, I can't really report on that unless I actually have, you know, a source. So I just go looking for it. For 50 minutes, I crawl through the internet trying to find a source for this quote. Now, I found a couple of things. Apparently, James Duff, who actually wrote this episode, had a comment, this is alleged, by the way, about the work on this episode when it came to him being interviewed over on Discovery, when he was pulled into Discovery Season 2. Okay. And I that got me some timestamps, and it got me a range to search for, which I did. Found the man's Facebook posts, which actually terminated several years ago, but ironically enough, were really enlightening for a completely unrelated reason. He actually went into detail about the specific nature of why a show he'd been working on, which I can't think of the name of right now, Closing Something. It, it, it was a crime drama, but he, he went into detail on the behind the scenes of how executives make decisions with regards to which shows stay when and where and how, and how they divvy up findings and how the Nielsen system is completely broken. Most of this is stuff I actually already knew because I've been studying television for a long time. But it was interesting to see that kind of upfront and detailed analysis of it. I, I recommend you look into it if you ever want to find out how television has been made. And that's recent. That was 20, uh, 2017. So television still has a lot of the same problems it has since the TOS era. Go figure. Anyways, nothing there. So I'm like, okay, well, let's find his Twitter. And for those of you not aware, I don't Twitter. I, I don't social media in general. Uh, I have a Twitter account, which I use in order to give out announcements. I have a Tumblr account, which I use as a Q&A forum. I do not have a Facebook uh, or an anything else, really. 
And I don't plan to. I don't social media. Not for me. No, thank you. Going through his Twitter reminded me of one of the reasons why I don't Twitter. Because as much as I love seeing people yell at each other within a hundred characters, or whatever the actual limit is, about political opinions, I've got other things to do with my time. Thanks. Nevertheless, I did actually peruse all the way back until the timestamp that I already had. Remember, I have a range, thanks to knowing when he goes on to Star Trek Discovery Season 2, when he was assigned to that. So, from that range, I looked and read every single one of his tweets to find this thing. Nothing. Not even a reference to it. So I start looking up interviews, of which I found several. Nothing there either. So I start looking up random references, like he's been in a couple of documentaries, where I find nothing as well. I mean, he has been in a few, but nothing about his work on this episode, which was his first real Star Trek work, by the way. Nothing. So I give up. I can't give validity to the comment he made. That he may or may not have made. Let me say that more accurately. Which is a damned shame, because if it was true, it means I'm right. Now, that's part of why I was digging into it. It is nice every now and again to have a theory that is validated. But the other reason I bring that up is because it would really add more information to my arsenal for my theory crafting with regards to the construction of this show. I'm going to circle back to that, so just hold on to that for the time being. Meanwhile, in the episode proper, they throw this football way across the thing because gravity's lower. Okay, cool. Um, gravity being lower doesn't increase your accuracy, so I gotta admit, the kind of passes they pull are kind of insane. Like, they're trying to hit a very narrow target across a very long distance. I wonder, like, I would have loved it if the camera just panned down and you just see, like, 15 or 20 footballs down there that they just kind of let collect up every now and again because screw it, right? Anywho, then the Nausicans attack. And they're like, quick, drop out of warp! And the camera cuts to outside and the ship's uh, out of warp. Um, I think that's just a technical issue. I'm only pointing it out to make fun because screw this episode. But um, I will admit the cold open is at least efficient. We as Star Trek fans know who Nausicans are. And those who are not Star Trek fans can get the general gist of what's going on. Oh no, pirates action doom. This then leads to a dumb scene in which Archer decides to have a message, excuse me, a video call with Admiral Forrest. Now, you're probably thinking, Lore, what's the problem with this? People do this in Star Trek all the time. Yeah, from about a century from now onwards. Once again, I feel like pointing out that the show is shooting itself in the foot. Because what could have worked perfectly well here, and, I, and again, this would be so easy to fix, is it's a message from Forrest, not a video call. They are not Skyping. They are not on Zoom or Discord. It is a video message that Forrest leaves that has some quality issues because of the distance it's traveled and the general de degradation of signals, and he watches it, and all of the information is then presented as needed. Now you're probably thinking, well, then how's he going to talk back to him? Well, I don't know if you watched that scene, but Archer, everything that Archer says is just a prompt for Forrest to continue giving the briefing. That's it. There's no point at which Archer is actually required for that conversation whatsoever. If he had just been watching a briefing, it would have been exactly the same input that we are getting and that he is getting. So, that's stupid. 
Also, if you freeze frame it as it's leaving, you'll notice that it mentions the Echo 1 Transponder 4 buoy, which they haven't dropped yet. So we've got continuity gaffes on top of everything else. Although, while we're speaking of continuity gaffes, it's worth noting that the Noskins in this episode are not. <laughs> but moving on. So, <clears throat> the next ship, as Forrest says, is weeks away. Now, okay, that actually lines up. Remember, it's actually a major plot and character and setting point that the NX-01 is fast, that this sucker can do warp 4.5, and in so doing, this ship can act, uh, be a first responder in ways that most other ships can't. This is all very logical, and it makes perfect sense why you'd send Enterprise after this, because they can get there very quickly relative to someone who's going to take weeks out of their life just to get to a location where they might not be anymore. So, okay, I'm with that. But I want you to remember that speed disparity, okay? And then bring it up later. So, then they get in the, you know, the, the shuttle, and they avoid the debris, and they go forward, and Ryan doesn't want help. <sighs> okay. Uh, huh. Now, at first I was willing to give this episode the benefit of the doubt, because it looks like what Ryan is actually doing is, you know, he's, he's trying to hide the fact that he has this prisoner. As the episode develops, it becomes more and more clear that Ryan is stubborn, obsessed, and arguably unhinged. Which I don't like. I think it is actually to the detriment of the episode the way Ryan is portrayed, but I'll get back to that later. So, he constantly is like, no, I don't want any help, I don't want any help. Then he has a few scenes with Travis. This this leads to the, the meal scene where he sits down and he starts digging into a steak with obvious enthusiasm. This is the good scene of the episode. Travis and Ryan have some decent chemistry together, the actors do. And there's an obvious connection between the two since they're both boomers. Once again, that's interesting with modern perspective. And then there's the fact that there's just a lot of little subtle stuff going on there. Surprisingly good stuff, if I might be so bold. I mentioned how he's digging into the food so enthusiastically. The actor does a good job of portraying someone who hasn't had a real steak in a year and a half. Travis is at one point, you know, at one point Ryan gets this really, you know, why'd you leave your family? If you, if it was, you know, why would you do that? Travis then responds by acting like he just got slapped in the face. That was one of the hardest decisions I ever made. And I'm going to circle back to that, so remember that, okay? Then Ryan in response says, oh yeah, sure, I, I, you just wanted the food and blah, blah. And, and what, turns, what starts off as a fairly good connection between the two turns into antagonizement because Ryan just cannot imagine anyone actually turning their back on their family. I mean, this is because Ryan is portrayed as excessively, to the point of extreme, traditionalist. Now, what's interesting about this is the actual captain, who only really has two scenes, the intro and the outro, he is also portrayed as similarly traditionalist. He is just as uncertain and unwilling to change as anyone else. It's just he is going to do it because you got to do what you got to do. But he is portrayed as just as traditionalist as Ryan is. Nowhere is this more obvious than a throwaway bit where <clears throat> they can go warp 1.8. It would not be hard to upgrade their ship to get to the point where they can go warp 3, which will cut down... A five-year journey to six months. Now, this is... It's, I like to relate things to real life because I feel like it makes things more understandable. 
You know, it gives us more perspective on comprehending things. If, you know, I talk about something that you've interacted with in your very life, it's hard to properly exposit on the nature of how much travel speed fundamentally changes uh, everything. You know, in real life, the utilization of horses and camels and everything else, uh, the shift up to motorized, you know, trains, uh, the shift up from trains to cars being a regular thing, the inclusion of airplanes as part of our network. This is as close as we get to that, because if you set out on foot right now, well, it's a bit of a shift in speed. Not too long ago, I had to take my car in in order to get it looked at. I'm not going to tell you how that turned out, because that's irrelevant to the story. What is relevant was it was basically just down the road from my step-parents' house, and they invited me to stay there while I waited for the car to be worked on, because there's an epidemic going on, and I couldn't just wait in the lobby. The lobby was actually closed. You with me so far? So, I had to walk. I say I had to. I didn't have to, but I did walk. And I, I figured, you know, I'll check some other places as I go. Everywhere else was closed as well, naturally. You know how long it took me? took me a little over an hour and a half to make that trip. Now, I have a bad leg, and by the end of it, my foot was giving me some very serious issues. But that's about how long it took me to walk that trip. When it was time to go pick my car up, I ended up calling an Uber and just paying the expense. You know how long that took? Counting traffic? Seven minutes. Anybody who's ever seen a distance, a specific length of travel, on both, both on foot and on car, understands at least a little bit of what I'm going to be talking about a lot in this episode. The, dis, the, the difference in travel speed. It's gargantuan. The amount of difference it makes from going just from a car to walking is huge. If I started walking from my step-parents' place from here now, I might not get there today. That's assuming I am physically capable of making that trip, of course. If I were to drive, I'd be there before lunch. Actually, it would probably be closer to 20 minutes. It's not that long of a trip by car. That massive scale variance and how much that not only changes the, the nature of how people interact with each other is very important for this episode because this stupid, dinky little freighter can go warp 1.8. They're walking. By contrast, a slightly better freighter can go warp 3, which is in a car. The Enterprise is a frickin' helicopter. That's not a great analogy. But again, this is at such a scale that real life doesn't quite equate. Warp 4.5 is so much faster than Warp 3 because it's this scale, not this scale. So in other words, um, his obstinance in refusing to upgrade from Warp 1.8 to Warp 3 is immeasurably stupid. In fact, one of the things that he mentions is you just wouldn't have enough time to enjoy the ride. Now, at first I was willing to just throw this away as Ryan was just messing with them, but then at the end of the episode, the guy laments, the actual captain, laments the fact that he's going to have to upgrade to Warp 3 just to stay solvent, just to stay competitive. What? So they are actually hesitant to go monumentally faster, which is an improvement in basically every way. I mean, you've got sanity, you've got basic decency, you've got safety, you've got profitability. I agree that there's a certain point at which we have a bit of a fall-off, but we're not there yet. This is the very bare bones of the frontier. The point at which Star Trek is at right now is such that it is entirely possible that a ship 
could leave at warp to go to another system and arrive with its cargo and find out that another ship left after they left and got here sooner and has replaced them. That is actually the realm we are in at this particular cycle. We're in the middle of a boom, hence the term. We're in the middle of a, a rotation of technology and society. What the crap? Forgive me for going on about this so much, but it's one of the more interesting aspects of the episode, and will come up later as well. But let's move on. So then there's this... So we cut back to the good scene, which is the meal. And I do have to mention two little tidbits. Uh, and then I want to talk about the thing I said I'd circle back around to. First, there's three more NXs coming. That's actually interesting to me, since they're still doing the test run um, now of the first NX. You'd think they'd at least wait. Uh, but then again, I've seen real-life engineers, so what the hell do I know? Second point. Oh, we will actually see some of those NXs in the future, so that's neat, too. Second point. The North Star. This is the only really good bit of writing in the entire episode, in my opinion. Where are you from? Uh, you know, my parents were on the North Star. Travis looks down. I'm sorry. Nah, you know, I was one of the only survivors. You know, it's good exposition. It's good characterization. It's one of the reasons I was hesitating to give this episode lamentation status. So enjoy it for what it is. I mentioned I'd circle back to Travis's point. <laughs> You'll notice I'm talking a lot about the one good scene here. Forgive me. It takes up literally half my notes. I'm not even joking. Travis wanted to join Starfleet. He wanted to get out there, and he wanted to see things, and he wanted to move forward with his life. He mentions that he wasn't sure what he wanted to do with himself and if he wanted to just be a cargo runner for the rest of his life. Obviously, Ryan thinks that's tantamount to treason. He has betrayed his family and his cause and blah, blah, blah. Travis agrees. And that's one of the reasons it bothers Travis so much when he is hit by Ryan here. But I bring all this up, not to, to bring that to light, but rather to talk about something that doesn't get talked about often in fiction, but is very relevant in real life. You ever have a career path you wanted to jump into? Now... I'm I'm sorry, I'm slanting this question on purpose because there's I'm actually asking two questions. One is, do you ever have something you wanted to do when you grew up? And the other is, do you ever have something you actually want to do when you grow up? This is, I don't know how this is in other countries, but here in the States, one of the biggest flaws of the education system is that it doesn't actually prepare you for the workforce. Because unless you're one of those rare exceptions, which actually has a career counselor who gives a damn and knows how to do their job, what you have is people just saying, so, just study computers? Eh. Because I've discovered in my extensive years of analyzing and you know, looking into people, watching them and learning them and how and where and why and what, that most people have at least one or two things that they're actually pretty into, even when it comes to work. As in, you know, obviously you're going to have the rare exception who is just someone who just wants to sit around and laze around and do nothing and contribute nothing. Under certain circumstances, that is acceptable. But then you have the other overwhelming majority of people who want to do something. The catch is, what is that something? This is why I divide this question in two, because there's things you might be into, but obviously, unless you are properly couched or trained or taken care of, you're not actually sure. Then there's things you are actually into. I like to call that a career. 
because that's something you are committed to for the bulk of your life. You are now setting aside decades of your existence in order to try and further that ambition. It may be a small ambition. It may, it may be inconsequential. It may be laughable to some people, but those people are stupid because that's your ambition. And then it matters because of that. There's nothing wrong with aspiring to be a drive-through person who is the guy who or a girl who sits on the headset and deals with that. I know one person I can name right off the top of my head who was like that. I knew one person who really wanted to work in the camera, like like dealing with. Um, I actually don't know what to call it. I'd say photography, but that's wrong because that's taking pictures. I mean, someone who really wanted to get into developing pictures and the science and nature of actually, you know, blowing them up or cropping them or printing out multiple copies or being most efficient about the, the usage per page and all that fun stuff, right? They were into that. They wanted to do that. My point I'm trying to reach here is that if you are actually into something that's different from something that you're not. Let me use another analogy. Let's say one day you're like, man, I wish I had a million bucks. Then, let us also say in that same day that you say, I really wish that I had the financial solvency to be able to pay my bills and have some extra on the side in order to be able to, you know, maybe buy a model every week or two and just kind of work on it on the side, you know? The difference between those is the former isn't something you're really into. I mean, oh, it'd be nice. But not only is it kind of a fantasy, but it's not really where your interests lie. Your interest actually lies in that model and making those models with your spare time and using that as your focus. It's not a career in this case. It's actually a hobby. But the same thing applies. It's that enthusiasm and that care that matters. Sense make? All of this is a walk-around way of saying that Travis actually wanted to join Starfleet. And there's a sufficient weight behind that. This is most especially shown when he is so pissed at Ryan for calling into question as if it was not an actual want. As if it was just a random fancy. Because there's a big difference between a random flight of fancy and a life commitment. Unfortunately, we don't learn much about why Travis wanted that. It's almost like this episode, which was supposed to be a Travis episode, barely characterizes him. Another reason this one gets lamentation status, because it fails at one of its primary goals. Characterization for its main character. We haven't even gotten to the part that pisses me off yet. Although, we are now there. <laughs> we're, we're actually there. It's, it's few scenes happen, there's a hide-and-go-seek thing, blah, 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 and... They've captured a Nausicaan, and we found them out. What? So Ryan says, not that it's any of your business, which he's right, by the way. But yes, we have actually taken a Nausicaan prisoner from the previous thing. Pause. I am nearly 100% with Ryan as of this moment in time. It is not their business. They are not under Starfleet jurisdiction. And they were attacked by an aggressive marauding force defended themselves, and took a prisoner. Totally legit with all of that. No, really. Moving on. So then, Archer comes by and says something, and I'm just going to read, read it word for word. What gives you the right to take prisoners? I had to pause the episode because of how much that line pissed me off. 
I'm not even joking. I had to pause. I had it on pause for several minutes as I was just, I started working on other things because I was so angry at the wrong of that line. It was so full of itself and it was so completely head in the clouds and it was so nonsense, elitist, stuck up, preachy garbage that it pissed me off and I had to pause the episode because then the next thing that happens is the guy says you don't have jurisdiction here and Archer's like you're right uh, Tucker pull out all the repairs we just did to their ship he straight up blackmails this guy over this what now I want you to consider something. Up until this point, Ryan hasn't really been uh, unreasonable. He has been pushed into a corner by a superior foe. But other than that, he is mostly just kind of, you know, he, he, he has a side. There's a reasonability to him, and you can kind of see why he has a point. Archer uh, does not. Archer doesn't have a point at all. He's just being a elitist prick. Okay, so moving on. I'm just waiting for someone in the comments to defend Archer on this one. But hear me out, because I'm going somewhere with this. What then happens is he decides to go ahead and send them to a false flag. Like, oh my god, I'm totally sending you to this place. Attacks Starfleet officers, locks them in, ejects the cargo. That's not an easy thing to replace, by the way, just to get rid of them. And then gets one extremely lucky attack off on Enterprise and then flees. All right, now... <clears throat> So, he has just fired on a Starfleet vessel, on Starfleet personnel. His career is effectively over. In fact, he gets off very lightly for the rest of this episode as a consequence of that. It would have been entirely within reasonability for Starfleet to impound the entire ship and everyone on board. They didn't, because we've got to wrap this up, but... <laughs> this is when Ryan starts to lose me. And I can't help but notice that this is this, the latter part of the episode. We're already well over halfway. We're in the second to final act when that happens. And the final act is when he really starts going nutso. Now, you remember that quote I mentioned earlier? That probably didn't happen because I couldn't verify it by James Duff? Well, allow me to share it with you. The quote basically said that Mr. Duff said, alleged, big asterisk, alleged, that he said... When he was working on Fortunate Son, Rick Berman and the executives came down like a ton of bricks on him and said, no, you have to change the ending, because the original intent was to show that both Archer and Ryan had a point, and both sides were right, while at the same time being wrong. And he was told, no, you can't do that. You can't show Archer in a bad light. Now, if that sounds familiar, that is exactly what happened to Janeway. So, while I cannot prove the validity of this, and that's why I had all those asterisks and all those prefaces, and why I spent almost an hour researching this painstakingly, I cannot prove this. But I think it's true. Because my own analysis prior to learning this fact, which I only learned today, has already supported that exact same conclusion. This is why I keep jokingly calling Archer Janeway, but it's not really a joke, because... He is being written and portrayed in the exact same manner. He is right. And he is right in this episode. Travis comes down. 
Sir, I mean, you know, maybe it's it's okay to let him go and blow up those Nausicans. And Archer says, that just doesn't sit well with me. We're humans, and we're supposed to be above revenge, because there can't possibly be any other motive here other than revenge. And, you know, we, we hold ourselves to a higher aspiration of humanity and blah, 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 blah. And this heroic music is playing while he's giving this terrible speech. And Travis is like, yes, of course. And then Archer even pseudo-threatens him. Any of my, uh, other of my orders you want to question? What? And then, of course, remember, Ryan was fine in the first half, but now Ryan's all just, yeah. yes, I'm going to torture you, and then I'm going to beat you, and then we're going to hunt them down, even when they've got the upper hand, and then we're going to attack them, because I'm obsessed with revenge, and it takes forever for him to con be convinced not to do this. And Travis flat out tells him uh, to his face on the comm that he's just doing this for revenge, that it has nothing to do with his family. Because Ryan is in the wrong, and that is the easiest way to make someone right is to make someone else who is wrong. By the way, when I say right, I want to stress that in my head, that's a capital R. It's a specific type of narration. It's it's a narrative point, excuse me. It's 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 a point of storytelling. There there we go, that's better. Where someone is correct. They have made the correct choices. They are in the right because they are the hero and they cannot be questioned at all. And there's nothing actually necessarily wrong with that if you do it properly. Really. There's nothing wrong with having a hero who is right. I'm fine with that. What I'm not fine is with this. Just like I wasn't fine with Janeway, because not only is it inconsistent, and it is very poorly done, but it's also very crudely done. It's like, is imagine for a moment if someone walks up to a stall and is like, hmm, should I buy from this merchant or from that merchant? And the first merchant is like, I kill puppies! And the second merchant's like, what? No, I would never do that. And the person says, okay, I will choose to buy from the first merchant. And in order to make them right in that, we find out that gasp, the whole buying de death to puppies things, w w it was just a crazy thing. You know, he actually didn't mean that. that he was, had some uh, mental health issues and helping to buy this has, has improved his life and made things better for him and blah, 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 blah. Like, couldn't you just picture Janeway doing that? Or Archer? Now, the important distinction here is they are right without any good reason. They are right because the plot says they are. It's not like they intuited it, or they did their research, or they made a hard call, or they're even just the hero who innately knows for whatever reason. No, they just they pick one, and then the story reshuffles itself around to make them right. And again, I bet a lot of you are thinking of Voyager as I'm describing this, because Voyager did that all the freaking time. <sighs> So, uh, so they go into battle, hull plating to maximum, never going to let that go. And, you know, Archer is right, and the Nausicans, we, we should reach out to the Nausicans. The Nausicans are, of course, very cordial and, and, and can t are totally cool with talking this out. We just want our crewmen back. The Nausicans could have done very, very, very horrible things to the crew, but no, they don't. They just say, give us our crewmen back, and that's it because they're being reasonable, because we need to make Archer right. Then, Archer shows up, and now we actually have an excuse for the Nausicans to be reasonable, so they are still being reasonable, even though they were earlier, for reasons already discussed. Discussed? <laughs> then, 
there's this wonderful bit where Ryan says, what about next time? What about next time someone gets attacked by the Nazis? You know what the answer is? Well, there isn't one. Archer does not actually respond to that question. This is also a classic Janeway move, by the way. Someone asks her a point-blank question about her principles or her decisions, and her response is either to shut it down or say, nope, that's an order. She did that since season one. And that's exactly what Archer does here. He doesn't say the that's an order thing. He just shuts it down and doesn't even answer to it. This also leads to Travis getting out of his chair. I remind you, they're in a combat situation and actively being fired on, and he's the calm guy, so... Khan, as in he, he's the pilot, so... <sighs> so then the episode ends, and, and thank God. I gotta say, though, I find myself wondering about something. Uh, before I even started the episode, I wrote down this little note on the side. How does Starfleet deal with this kind of situation in a large-scale thing? The actual dilemma that is never brought up because Archer is right and Ryan is wrong. The actual dilemma is, okay, so you've got these people who are effectively independent traders. They just carry cargo from point A to point B. Now, they have built-in economic reasons to upgrade their ships, but they're not really required to. Also, Starfleet is not actually patrolling these areas nor keeping them safe from the kind of piracy that is happening. Now, that makes sense. As horrible as that sounds, Starfleet is not at the point where they have the numbers or the speed, told you to come up one more time here, in order to actually do that. If you have a ship that can go warp four, trying to catch up to ships that can go warp one or two, then you have a fast responder. You have a response team, basically. Avengers quote, we're walking, we're walking. And having that fast responder suddenly gives you tons of options because one ship can effectively cover a huge area because they can get to anywhere within it much quicker than anyone else can. And quicker than anyone else can leave, too. So all of a sudden, we see how this could be accomplished, but only if they're willing to use their big ships to do this. It is understandable that Starfleet might not want to use the NXs to do this. So how do they? Well, the other option is to do the convoy method. This is one of the benefits of convoy, other than the whole protection and numbers thing, which doesn't really apply in this exact case. It's more to do with the fact that because all your ships are in one spot, it is much easier to defend because you just didn't need to have the defense with that spot, a.k.a. the convoy, which is moving in one group. But that requires them to unionize and work together, so that's also something that might not work. since again, independent traders. So that leaves you with the final option here. Don't bother defending them at all. Because you can't. Right? I, I, I know this sounds horrific and awful, but my point is, if you don't have the resources and effort to do the fast response unit, and if they refuse to work with you on convoying for their better safety, well, then you can't and they won't, so screw them. <laughs> to put it bluntly. They have chosen their own path, right? But the reason I bring that up isn't because I'm actually antagonistic towards them, but rather because that's the point at which you have effectively, officially recognized vigilantism. You are on your own, officially, which means what you do is up to you, officially. Now that can work as long as Starfleet doesn't then curtail their ability to defend themselves, and isn't it interesting that that's exactly what Starfleet does in this episode? I can also point out that these little cargo craft do not exactly have advanced weapons. That makes sense. What if, for example, Starfleet limited the kind of weapons you could put on these things? 
to the point where it would no longer be helpful or useful. And you're probably thinking, well, I mean, they did all right against the Nazgans. Yeah, but when your main goal is capturing and taking cargo, you're going to be more focused on boarding. So you're not really focused on you know, damaging a ship, right? So it makes sense that the Nazgan ships don't have tons of firepower on their ships from a ship perspective. Instead, they have a bunch of people on board with guns who are experienced at boarding and taking, since that's the goal. This is an economic endeavor, after all. I know that sounds strange, but that is piracy is, is either a political maneuver, a.k.a. endorsed piracy, or it is an economic goal, a.k.a. we want your stuff. So, it makes a degree of sense that they couldn't keep up in that manner. But if you curtail what the cargo ships can have, they have no defense to begin with. What if you also limit their ability to have guns on board? Well, what's going to happen is they're going to start having illegal guns on board and illegal weapons on their ship, which then means Starfleet, if they catch them, will be like, well, you know, we're going to have to take take those off and, and fine you and maybe re revoke your license, at which point Starfleet is now actively making the situation worse. In short, I'm going to stop here, because I, I could keep going. In short, there's actually an extremely complex and, in my opinion, very interesting dilemma here. Because this is the frontier. Because we don't have the Enterprise-D, which has warp 9, and could just be like, oh, hey, yeah, uh, sorry it took us a few seconds longer, but, you know, I, I had to get to the bridge and respond to the call, but we're here. Oh, they haven't even started firing on you yet. Yeah, that's because it took us 8 seconds to get here. In modern Trek, piracy makes less sense ultimately for the same reason that piracy makes less sense for driving across the highway. We're just in an age of society where the economic and political value of doing so has subsided underneath the technological needs of the modern society. But when it's the frontier, when it's a train out in the middle of nowhere, or a bunch of wagons, or just a caravan, the economic and political perspective changes, doesn't it? And that's, again, where we're at. The low-tier thing. Although we apparently can have real-time conversation with someone who was dozens of light years away, but let's not go into that. <sighs> Two lamentations already. That makes me sad. It really does. I was talking to my mom earlier today. I was talking to her about this. I, I mentioned this. And she said something. Um, she didn't remember Enterprise much, because, like I said, we only got a handful of episodes in. I pointed it out as we went. And she says, if this show is so bad, why are you reviewing it for your show? And that question just kind of stuck with me, because my automatic knee-jerk reaction was, well, it's not that bad of a show. It's not, I swear. I'll see you next time, guys.